You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Tonight, we are delighted to be celebrating a prose debut that weaves together memoir and theory into a poetic meditation on family, growing up, gender, sorrow, and language. It's at times tender, at times exhilarating. It's a work of great emotional force and intellectual prowess. We're delighted to have with us tonight Emerson Whitney. They are the author of the poetry collection Ghost Box from Timeless Infinite Night Press. They also teach in the BFA creative writing program at Goddard College and are the Dana and David Dornseif teaching postdoctoral fellow at the University of Southern California. The new book is called Heaven. It is published by our friends over at McSweeney's. Uh, tonight is going to be, you know, your kind of usual thing. We're going to begin with Emerson reading passages from their books, uh, the new book, Heaven. Uh, afterwards, we're going to be taking questions, uh, how that's going to work. Uh, if you have a question, please just post it to the chat box. I'm going to be copying that down, and then I will ask Emerson questions at the end. Um, and now, without further ado, uh, further ado, it is a pleasure now to welcome Emerson Whitney. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Caitlin. Um, so appreciative to be at the virtual City Lights, and um, City Lights has always meant a lot to me as just such a wonderful um, place and press. And so, yeah, I'm honored to be here, and thank you for hosting um, my read of this book, which I really deeply love so much and so I'm I'm just honored to share with everyone right now and thanks to all of those of you who who are joining us um, so yeah thank you <laughs> mom was sweaty and the one lamp at her side lit the sweat the light was making shadows that looked like children she pulled the sheets up to her chin shut her eyes a ruddy, unshaven Texan skulked around. His belly hung over his pants. He was looking out one of the windows behind her bed, shaking a fist at her in his mind. Mom sunk deeper into the mattress, her arms folded over her chest. The man pacing by the bed waved an open Bible at her. She didn't take it. She wasn't sure who he was, why she was barely clothed in bed, why there was a brace around her rib cage, a plastic ID band on her wrist why it was so hot, so cold, why the sun had already set. She didn't understand this part. He found her with a few broken ribs and a bloodshot eye. Her head leaned against the steering wheel, a thin, blonde woman with little wrists and small hoop earrings, vodka bottles clinking in the well beneath the driver's seat. She looked expensive. He carried her like a blanket back to his bed. His mother, a cherry-faced German Texan, came over to watch. This was old Texas, like in the movies. The delirium tremens in Texas where dip tins make circles in everybody's back pocket. The old woman watched over her like she would a snake, a fire, as if she were on a porch or in a breezeway and not in a humid room watching a rich looking white woman shake herself almost to death. The cherry faced woman knitted in a broken chair next to the bed. This went on for almost 10 days, cicadas crowing, bluebells popping up. I like this story, the story of these strangers watching my mom, doing my job. I imagined it, I wasn't there. 
At the time, I didn't know where she was. We hadn't spoken. I'd been everywhere by then. She was still in Dallas. At least I figured she was. I told myself I couldn't give a shit less. Mom's probably dead or dying, I'd say. And this was true, at least mostly. She scared me. Loving her scared me. Eventually, I heard pieces of this story and invented the rest. She was in Texas. There was some guy. There were broken ribs. I had cut off all contact, was on my own. I didn't care about her anymore, I'd say. I already grieved. But then I began to get phone calls from relatives saying she was skidding, maybe to a stop. She wasn't well. I had started falling, sliding somewhere myself. Everything I fear in her lives hot inside of me. Ask me about my mother now and I'll answer you with a question. Which of these are my words? I will be at Walmart this afternoon, going to the tractor supply and McDonald's for my B-Day. Haha, you gotta love a simple life. We have another nor'easter coming. Can we talk tomorrow? I have the day off and I'm using it to train Kitty to pee and poop in the toilet. Sometime after the broken ribs and the guy with the Bible, she moved into a camper parked on the periphery of a graveyard. The camper was 70s style with white plastic paneling and a red racing stripe. It was pulled under a group of poplar trees, which leaned heavy across an ornate wrought iron fence and scratched the roof. When she'd walked outside on her way anywhere, she'd squish across repotted grass, overblown headstones that her boyfriend was supposed to fix. Every day, she checked her teeth in a tiny mirror over her stove, poured a cup of coffee and stepped outside. The camper door slapped. She walked into town through the tourists, through the side door to the inn where she worked. She took this walk six days a week with her head down, wiping her hands on her apron. The skin of her palms peeled off, peeling from bleaching bathtubs and sinks. My mother looks like a woman from New York City anyway, even with broken skin. She's proud of a gap in her teeth where she didn't pay for a new tooth where she gums at watery candy now, she says. Her shoulders and hands are torn up, but the fan of her neck is always powdered or moisturized or whatever it is. Her hair is always newly dyed. Her face peeks out from the freshness of it. Her hands are mostly clasped in her lap, her eyes darting all around. When I was little, I'd twist her hair around my hand and hold it. She'd put her head in my stomach knees pressed into the linoleum, wearing jeans and a gray sweatshirt with the elastic worn out. She'd make wet streaks on my shirt, sobbing so her head bounced against my stomach, wild and hard, her nose running down. I'd put my hands on the back of her head. She'd whimper. I'd hold her hair. I'd miss her so much, even though she was right there, miss her like a sheath. Her blue eyes would beat into mine, a tear would kick off my face and onto her head. Mom would see it, reach up and touch it. And I'm gonna do just a little bit more of this and then maybe we can hear from you or this part. Maybe we can hear from you a little bit. All right. Um, I used to watch mom on TV. I would pull the videos out of the back of the cupboard while I was homesick as a teenager. They were in green VHS sleeves in the way back. I don't know where they are now and it doesn't matter because nobody has a VCR. A blonde man and woman sat forward in heavy floral chairs. They chatted, glanced at the camera from the foreground of a pastel painting of Sacramento, the woman's shoulder pads blotting out the American River. The woman turned to face the camera. She said, Marie, 
a craft scene backdrop slapped on the screen, a blue wall, the camera panned to mom behind a brown table filled with scraps of things, paper. She was perfect and 80s, had giant red glasses. She blinked at the camera, held up a cutout of my image that she'd made into a lampshade. I was adorable as a lampshade, was four or something years old. I know that's my friend Sherry's favorite part, I think, and she's here, so there you go. That's for you, Sherry. Um, in the photo mom was holding, I wore overalls and a pink baseball cap. My hands were in my pockets. I looked a little pissed. She was saying something about my dad, said dad flatly, and I was surprised to hear it. She showed the audience how to make a calendar for kids to understand visitation when their parents were divorced. She moved the cutout of me to Monday, Wednesday. I never saw dad like she was talking about. We didn't have a schedule and we didn't live close. She talked about me and explained decoupage. Her hair was clipped behind her head, glasses leaning off her nose, beautiful. She made perfect sense. When the show was live, I'd watch it from the car seat in the living room. I was four, the shadow of a palm tree moving across the floor. I rocked in the car seat with my arms crossed. There was nothing in the room, just foam green carpet and a bucket of paint at the entry to the kitchen, white paint that smelled empty. I don't know why there was only a car seat. All those times that mom's face was center on TV, I waited for her wave. I'd watch her voice, her body projecting, moving onto its toes. She'd hold her elbow up and smile at the studio audience. I'd wave back. Music would come on. Synthy music about Sacramento. The crush of light in the, in the living room would make the screen too white. Her face and her waving would careen off into an advertisement, leave the echo of her voice in the room like paint. I'd push myself out of the car seat, pad into the kitchen, tip a chair on its back two legs, and drag it toward the refrigerator. I always used the same chair, the one with the loose cushion, tan and wrinkled. I'd hoist myself onto the seat, always an inch or two too short to be eye level with the top. I'd open the fridge and lodge my foot between the interior racks and use that fulcrum to pull my pacifier off the fridge, the blue one, the one with the elephant on the tip. They stuck it up there so I'd stop sucking on it. I'd stand on the chair totally triumphant shove it into my mouth with both hands, smile behind it. When I was an infant, I'd put my mouth around my mom's actual nipple and my face would fill with snot. A red pimply ring would grow where my mouth was. I gave mom mastitis, was allergic to her milk. I was allergic to formula too, to everything. I coughed. My younger brothers drank her up. When she'd come into the house, they'd feel her breasts arriving. They'd shriek and run toward her legs. I'd hang back. Her smell would rush at me anyway. Light would shift in the house. Mom's voice flickered against the clicking on of lamps. Here's the etymology. Mammary is a word that's likely derived from a natural sound in baby talk, perhaps imitative of a sound made while sucking. Ma, the ache of wanting is enormous. I drank off the plug like a drunk. I'm not ashamed. Mama is from 1707. Mum is from 1823. Mummy, in this sense, is from 1839. Mommy, 1844. Mama, 1852. And mom, 1867. And mastectomy, or the surgical removal of a breast, is from 1909. From Greek mastos, like masticate, burn. It's like the splitting of rocks or gems from cleavage to cut along a fissure line. I'm thinking about giving an account of myself. The stories do not capture the body to which they refer. 
even the history of this body is not fully narratable, Judith Butler writes. Any effort to give an account of oneself will have to fail to approach being true. Emerson, thank you so much. That was beautiful. Okay, well. No, if there isn't any, I'm <laughs> totally happy to keep going. Actually, you know what often happens when I do this is I, I, I've, I just shared this the other day with some folks on the Instagram live that we had, but um, I, my only reading I was able to ever give um, prior to quarantine time, um, uh, I, I was at Goddard College where I teach and where I, I was a student. I finally graduated there after many years of trying to graduate from somewhere. And so it was really wonderful. They'd packed the room and which is very rare during a residency, the whole school came and I was completely honored by that. And then we asked for questions and there were none. And I don't think I've ever seen that before. And somebody <clears throat> afterwards came up to me and was just like, it was just the way that you read it. Like there was nothing to say. And I, yeah, I'm still kind of, I don't really know what that means, but I've actually found that a lot lately. And maybe it's just our platform also, you know, that the Zoom and Instagram live stuff is like odd. Um, but yeah. yeah, I'm also really happy for this text to just sit in the air and for it not to, you know, need, need a ton of explanation, but I'm seeing some questions. So. Let's see, Tiffany, I'm going to go ahead and unmute you and you should be able to ask Emerson your question. Hi. Hi. Hear me okay? Hi, Tiffany. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. That was beautiful. I did send it through the chat because I'm a little shy, but I tried to raise my I don't think it was seen, but as a memoir writer, did you find that you living any emotions from the past? And if so, was that really difficult? Um, thank you so much for asking that. Um, absolutely. I think there was a lot um, of reckoning that happened when I re-engaged with this subject matter. Um, and at the same time, it was so cellular to me. Like these memories were things that um, kind of jumped out at me all day long, every day, as long as I could remember, which, you know, I guess in a sense, like that, that's kind of what I was hoping to portray was sort of the um, horizon of my being in a way um, and how that horizon can be um, made up of all of these different sort of like scenes. And um, in a way it was, surprisingly less um, emotive, uh, putting it down just because I think they, it was so familiar to me, these, these memories and this way of kind of thinking so familiar. But, but certainly a lot um, comes up when I read it even and when I re-engage it. But yeah, definitely there's a lot to that. And for sure, I hope that there's an emotional quality to the, to the text that is reflexive of my, my um, my experience. For sure. It's so emotional that I wondered how, how hard it would be to write that because it just strikes you just like riveting emotion. Oh, and so thank you so much. Feeling. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. All right, I'm seeing another question here in the chat function. Um, let's see, uh, El Napolitano, she writes, I love the idea of giving an accounting for myself. Can you say more about that? Oh yeah, um, I love that. Uh, An account of oneself is a, is a fabulous text that Judith Butler wrote, and that I really hung out with a lot for this book. And um, the idea, basically, that she lays out is that it's always failing because we basically need another person to like. First of all, the language that we 
you know, use wasn't our choice and, and the gender that like gender itself wasn't a choice. And when we're born, we're usually funneled through language and gender in this, you know, according to Butler in this way, which I thought was a really interesting way of um, engaging selfhood conceptually that I'm not really invited to selfhood in terms of agency. Um, I'm, I am, uh, I don't know how much of an agent I am. Actually, I feel much more as if myself is, a, is collaborative, which is ter terrifying um, in some ways to think about, at least for me, that, um, that maybe I don't get to kind of possess an identity that really, it's sort of co-created um, with like, you know, culture and, and maybe society and we could, I guess, zoom out really big there. But in general, I'm sort of fascinated by um, the co-creative aspect of self and you know how maybe it's not even that knowable like we talk a lot about like how do i know myself um yeah and i just i just think of it you know as as maybe much more ephemeral than that so i hope that kind of comes across in this text thanks definitely um let's see looks like we have william crawford next so my question is like this this book sounded like based on what you read, it sounded like it's come from a, from something a bit personal. Like, is this based on a true story? Yeah, it is. And it's, it's, uh, it's autobiography. So it is true. And it is uh, a mix of autobiography and theory. So, um, yeah, truth is slippery, but definitely, um, I, I don't even think in fiction. So I really struggle to do anything other than autobiography, which is kind of odd. I'm working on another book right now and I was working on it today and I was like, my gosh, it's like the same, like I'm just doing the same thing. And I, I know a lot of writers that I love that are doing that too. And, you know, I love the idea that memoir itself isn't just one account of one life. I thought that's what it was for a really long time, but um, I'm so grateful for all these writers who have explained to me through their work that life writing is the thing. And I can use like my, my subjective eye as a way to kaleidoscope through a bunch of different themes and um, stories and concepts throughout the course of my, my life as a writer. So, um, so yeah, it's true. <laughs> All right, folks. Um, there's subjects as huge as identity and relationship to mother and these things that are almost hard to separate yourself from when you're trying to figure out who yourself is, <laughs> are. Um, mm -hmm. How, when did you think that you were ready to like sit down and write this story? Like did something happen like that you're mm -hmm. like, okay, now I'm ready. Or did you just wake up one day or like, oh, I have to write this. Like, mm -hmm. Um, and that's if a great question. That happened, that's totally cool. <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean, you know, what happened actually was, um, was grad school, which I am someone with like this long and tedious educational journey. So I don't think it personally, it's always odd for me to kind of give school the credit for this, but it did come from school. And I actually really appreciate schools and I, I work in them and I attended them. And I, so I'm, I'm very deeply appreciative. I think it can happen outside of school too, for sure. But, um, 
but I wrote Ghost Box, which was the first, my first book, my first semester of an MFA program that, that I was in. And then I was doing, I realized that I was doing everything in my human power to not write this particular book. And so a ghost box was like me sitting at a Kmart parking lot for three months um, to try to figure out this story of like a woman who was feeding birds there. It's a long story, but it was like, it was literally my attempt to like do anything else. I was like, well, I'll try like journalism again. Cause I was a journalist for a number of years. And I was like, how do I not write about myself? And it was kind of like what I was saying to William a minute ago that like, I didn't know it was okay to do this. And I appreciate what um, Melissa Phoebos writes about this a little bit that she's she talks about when her students want to write memoir that she notices a lot of them particularly when they go to write about like moms or subjects in about like that, that have any connection to the female or femininity or anything that they're so afraid to be called narcissists and she actually draws out the, the she she brings up the parallel between that and in her students and then carl ove's you know phenomenal uh, treatise, you know, or like series, I guess, um, called My Struggle and, and the empowerment that it seems that, that his um, way of making has, um, which I don't know is true at all, but that was what Phoebos said, which I um, noticed and have thought about a lot since I read that. And I think I had a similar anxiety. Um, so I tried really hard not to write this, but basically um, little bits kept coming out and I had a, really a wonderful team of people I was working with and uh, Maggie Nelson was one of them who was like you really need to just make this a book and you, and I said yes <laughs> but yeah that's that's what happened and um, uh, it was very poetic for a long time and I also had a really wonderful mentor named Mady Schutzman who was like please stop writing for obscurity's sake stop making this obscure like just say just say the thing and so that yeah that's that's what happened so and then I also just quickly also need to give credit really to the European Graduate School, which is um, I ended up wanting to know more about theory and I couldn't take classes at Occidental College, which was near me. They wouldn't like let me do it without like becoming a student, <laughs> even though I just wanted to take some philosophy classes because um, I wanted to know what everybody was talking about. I love theory um, and I just wanted to know what was going on more. I felt like I didn't have that. So I went to EGS and um, I got to work with Judith Butler. I got to work with Catherine Malibu, who's in the book as well. And so that was really quite helpful. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I bow in the direction of those institutions actually at this point because um, they were just seriously helpful for me. So yeah. That's wonderful. And it's wonderful to like give that credo to our, to education and to schools and that those times and isn't it a teacher appreciation week this week is it? oh my it. gosh yeah great so, that's awesome the teachers yeah teachers yeah. yeah um tiffany i see that your hand is still raised on here i just want to make sure that your question was asked and we're all good if you could give a thumbs up or just any sort of indication that we're good or we need to okay yeah. good okay thanks <laughs> tiffany Okay, um, I think that's all we have time for, guys. Emerson, thank you so much. I am yes. so privileged to be here this evening with you. Um, I just would also like to thank you all for coming. This is our kind of inaugural run in our, in our City Lights Live virtual series, so thank you for being here. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. 
All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.